Hey everybody, how's it going today? Welcome to the Where We Going Today podcast. As I've said in a number of my episodes before, my preferred style of delivery is to speak directly from the heart. With each episode, I may have a theme in mind, but I don't like to think it out ahead of time, to script it, to outline it. I like to just come from a place of meditation a place of presence and just allow my heart to open and speak. But lately I've been getting some messages from some of the listeners asking me certain questions about things that have come up in various episodes or asking me to explore different topics. And sometimes those requests have a number of questions. And so for today's episode, I thought perhaps I would address a particular topic that has come up repeatedly. So from time to time people ask me if I am a Buddhist monk and the answer is no I'm not. But I have on two very brief occasions in the past been a Buddhist monk and naturally that arouses people's curiosity about how one joins a monastery and becomes a monk. So really it depends on the particular tradition that you're a part of. We should probably understand that although Buddhism started in northern India some 2,600 years ago, it spread across much of Asia and became part of existing cultures in different regions, in different parts of the world. And as such, it has many different flavors, many different expressions. Tibetan Buddhism and Japanese Zen, as but two examples, appear to be very different in many respects. But even in different schools, different monasteries within Japanese Buddhism, for example, differ as well. And it's certainly the same in places like Thailand and Burma and elsewhere. So although I have only spent time as a Buddhist monk on two very brief occasions, I should say that my personal experience is limited, but I do possess a fair bit of intellectual understanding from having immersed myself specifically in Theravadan Buddhist culture. My two brief tenures as a Buddhist monk was as a Theravada monk, part of the Burmese Sangha. Although I've stated in other episodes that I identify closely with what's called the Thai forest tradition or the Thai Kamatana tradition, my master is a Burmese meditation monk whose teacher was the esteemed and venerated Master Mahasi Sayadaw. Not unlike the Thai forest tradition, my master's tradition is one in which the ultimate goal is the attainment of enlightenment in this life. Enlightenment is the very goal of Buddhism. And so it's important to understand that different monasteries, Buddhism in different countries, different regions, different schools and sects of Buddhism may have varying, somewhat different goals. In a general sense, the goal of Mahayana Buddhism is not enlightenment per se, but the attainment of Buddhahood itself. Whereas in Theravada Buddhism, the goal is individual enlightenment. There are many things that I could say about this practice, but 
within my master's tradition and also within the Thai forest tradition, the idea is to set aside things that stand in the way of the practice, the goal of enlightenment, the effort to attain enlightenment, and to focus wholeheartedly on the practice of enlightenment, in which meditation and the cultivation of mindfulness is central. Not only meditation in the formal sense on a meditation cushion, but off the meditation cushion as well, practicing, cultivating mindfulness in every posture as we go out, go through our day. So it's important to recognize that meditation, though, is not the only thing that the Buddha encouraged us and said that we need to do. We need to develop good, strong morality, virtue, which leads to, naturally, a development of concentration, a clear, stable, and still mind. And, of course, we need to develop the wisdom that arises from that very space of mindfulness that is steady and concentrated. And so part of that, developing morality, concentration, and wisdom, is to do things that help to nurture these three components. We might look at it as generating good karma, and good karma is generally a product of four noteworthy things. And the first is the practice of generosity. And the second is the development of virtue itself. The third is the development of concentration, tranquility of mind. And the fourth, particularly strong way of developing good karma that's conducive to the practice is through insight or mindfulness meditation practice. And so within my master's tradition in particular, as well as in Thai Buddhism, as I said, my master's tradition in the Thai forest tradition, although not exactly the same by any stretch, do have similarities, particularly in that the aim, the goal is enlightenment in this life. Much emphasis is placed on trying to generate some good karma by spending time in Buddhist robes, by taking robes. And so it is natural and ordinary in both Burmese culture and in Thai culture for young men at some point in their lives to leave the world behind, so to speak, in order to take robes and become monks. And so in my master's monastery a number of years ago, I was spending some time there as I often did. His monastery is in Las Vegas. I now live in California, and I don't get to spend personal time with my master as much as I used to, but I used to visit the monastery some four or five days a week. And on one occasion when I was at the monastery, there was an announcement that there would be a group temporary ordination ceremony coming up in a few months. I wanted to experience life as a Buddhist monk, and being that my life did not allow, nor was I karmically ready for a permanent ordination as a monk, since the culture supported a temporary ordination for the purpose of attaining a degree of full-time spiritual education, I decided that I wanted to experience this. And so it's important to recognize, getting back to the original question that one of the listeners had put forth about how does one join a monastery and become a monk, it's important to recognize that one must have a teacher or a monastery in which that wish, that desire uh, can be granted. 
not all monks, for instance, are necessarily able to do the proper formal ordination. Not only that, in some traditions or some monasteries, the candidate must be deemed, be deemed suitable in order to receive the, the training as a monk. By a suitable, a number of things are considered, and I won't spend a lot of time now because it's a whole other topic, but imagine, if you will, that the monastic code of conduct consists of 227 formal rules and a couple thousand subsidiary rules. Many of these rules are designed to promote a sense of cohesion and harmony within the monastic community. And so, of course, candidates are vetted to see if they're likely to play well with others, so to speak. So these are just a couple of examples of things that a potential candidate or someone seeking ordination may want to consider is do, does their master or the monk they wish to seek ordination from, are they legally, so to speak, able to ordain? And two, are they willing to ordain you? In this particular case, my master was able to ordain and he was offering people interested in opportunity to seek ordination. This is not widespread, but in places like Thailand and Burma, there are certainly opportunities. And curiously enough, I said that I identify closely with the Thai forest tradition. There are two primary schools of Buddhism in Thailand. There's the Dhammayut Nikaya and the Maha Nikaya. The Maha Nikaya is probably the easier Nikaya in which to seek a temporary ordination for everybody interested, less so in the Dhammayut. Generally speaking, the Thai forest tradition is part of the Dhammayut Nikaya. So that's in a nutshell how someone might join a monastery and become a monk. Of course, there's an entire formal process that one goes through to become a monk. One of the first of which is that one's head is shaved one must have robes to take and an alms bowl, that is what you might characterize or think of as a begging bowl. Although in the Theravada Buddhism, monks do not beg for food. In the mornings, they simply walk around with eyes on the ground, providing an opportunity for anybody who wants to practice generosity by offering food to an alms mendicant, that very opportunity. They don't beg, they don't ask for food, they provide opportunities for those who wish to give and make that sort of good karma through letting go of attachment and wishing to share what they have. So in any case, once one has the robes in the bowl, the head is shaved and they request ordination. And first, the candidate, after acceptance, is ordained as a novice monk. Certain teachings and protocols are gone through before eventually requesting higher ordination as a full Buddhist monk. In some traditions, it's required that the candidate must spend a fairly long period of time as a novice before they're allowed full ordination. In the case of my master offering group ordination on a temporary basis, that wasn't necessary. We were able to ordain temporarily as a novice monk, and then shortly thereafter on the very same day as a full Buddhist monk. When that happens, you go into a separate hall, a consecrated ordination hall, 
and the body of monks, not just the master. Here's your wish to become a monk and they ultimately vote as to whether they feel you would fit in well with the group, at which time more protocols are gone through. And in time after the ceremony, you leave the ordination hall as a Buddhist monk. The next training, excuse me, the next question that was brought forth along this topic is what sorts of changes in your lifestyle do you have to make to go through monk training? There are a number of things, but one thing in particular is Buddhist monks, certainly in the Thai forest tradition, are expected to be celibate. Not only celibate, they have many, many strict rules considering and concerning their interaction with women. As celibate monks, they are trying to avoid any sort of temptation. It's certainly not any sort of take or position on women. It is about cultivating celibacy and not being tempted. And as such, Buddhist monks, again, particularly of the more strict Theravada traditions and schools, are expected to have no physical contact with women. That is, no shaking hands or anything like that. And there are very strict rules even concerning the nature and types and time and conditions concerning having conversations with women as well. But celibacy is not the only um, aspect what one has to change in their lifestyle. One should expect as a Buddhist monk to eat less. For instance, there is no eating after the midday hour, generally noon. In the stricter traditions, such as the Thai forest tradition, not only that, they only eat one meal a day, usually about nine o'clock in the morning. They do not eat after that. And they also sleep less. That's a significant change in one's lifestyle. In my master's tradition, he idealizes that four hours is good for a meditator, but certainly no more than six hours of sleep per night is appropriate. So expect that change in one's lifestyle. And not only that, a monk should speak less. As lay people, we are accustomed to speaking a lot and often and generally about very frivolous topics. But as a, as a Buddhist monk, the ideal is to speak about only that which is beneficial, namely the cultivation of virtue or morality, concentration and wisdom, which is precisely what the Eightfold teaching of the Buddha is all about. A lot of other changes in lifestyle could be talked about, but for now that should provide a general sense of the primary changes. And another question that a listener put forth is, what is the level of learning or training that one who ordains as a Buddhist monk is hoping to reach? I said at the beginning of this episode that the goal in Theravada Buddhism is individual enlightenment. The Buddha taught that there are four stages of enlightenment and this is the goal, particularly in my master's tradition where the ultimate goal is the fourth and final stage of enlightenment, but lay people are encouraged to strive for at least the first stage of enlightenment and monastics perhaps higher levels of enlightenment. But it's important to recognize that not all Buddhist traditions set the goal of enlightenment as the goal itself. Many feel that it's a very difficult goal to reach, which of course it is, and therefore perhaps one's effort and energy and time would be better utilized just trying to become, say, a better person 
and to help others along the path. That is being a teacher, offering spiritual counseling to lay people and visitors and the like, whereas the emphasis is not so much on the personal goal of enlightenment, but more so on being a resource to the community and trying to be a better person. So when asked specifically about living as a forest monk, and perhaps we'll talk about more that more in upcoming episodes. For those interested in the time being, for the time being, you might look up the forest monks episode that I did a number of weeks back. But also next week, I have a group of friends joining me in Asia for an 11-day Buddhist pilgrimage in Thailand, in which we'll be visiting a lot of Thai forest monasteries. And so I expect the fruit of that effort and that experience will produce plenty more dialogue about the lives of forest monks. Another question put forth by a listener was, what does one who wants to become or becomes a monk give up in order to gain? Perhaps the very things I talked about, sex is certainly off the table. I should mention as an aside that it's such a strict practice that the Buddha himself said that any monk who has sex immediately leaves the monkhood, whether they request it or acknowledge it or not. They are no longer a Buddhist monk, and until they die, they can never again become a Buddhist monk. It's viewed as an extremely grave offense. Absolute celibacy is the expectation. Another question that was put forth by a listener is, where and how does one who is a monk live? Well, generally in a monastery, but not always. In the time of Lung Puman, the great master and founder of the Thai forest tradition, he would on occasion live in monasteries, but after all, being the founder of the Thai forest tradition, he had rediscovered something that one could argue had been essentially lost, certainly in Thailand, and that was an acknowledgement that although monks generally live in monasteries in the time of the Buddha, the Buddha was not living in a monastery when he sought and ultimately attained enlightenment. He did it in the forest. He practiced in the mountains and along the sides of the riverbanks and in caves and the like, and he encouraged that practice, and that's precisely what Lung Puman did and attained the fourth and final stage of enlightenment while meditating in a cave in northern Thailand. That being said, the vast majority of monks will actually live in monasteries. It's a simple matter of finding, again, a suitable teacher to ordain one and then staying either with that teacher or with someone else who's capable and willing to accept you as a student in the more strict tradition. traditions. You will stay with that teacher for five years, always with that teacher, learning directly not only through their word but through their practice and through their example. And after five years, generally one is free to move about and visit other monasteries or travel more freely. And the last question that was put forth with respect to this particular topic is, will the focus be on missionary work? As I outlined during this episode, it really does depend on the practice, whether one's emphasis is on enlightenment itself with a very meditation-focused practice such as my master's or such as the Thai force tradition, or if it's not so focused on meditation and more focused on improvement of oneself, 
but more greater emphasis on being a resource to the community. But I will mention as an aside with respect to this question on missionary work, I can't speak as to other Buddhist traditions, but in the Theravada tradition, which is my tradition, one will never see a Buddhist missionary. The Buddha actually prohibited monks and nuns from missionary work. It was viewed that people could take offense if unsolicited attempts were made to convert someone to Buddhism, and the Buddha felt that potentially could be a very nasty, unfavorable karmic condition for someone, and as such, monks and nuns were prohibited from doing any missionary work. That being said, if someone goes to a Buddhist monastery, it is assumed that they are there because they are interested in learning, and therefore a monk or nun would be happy to offer a teaching and not only that, if otherwise, outside of a monastery, someone approaches a Buddhist monk or nun and engages them, that is viewed as a, an openness to receiving the teachings, and they may be offered at that time. So thank you everyone for listening to this episode on Taking Robes. There are certainly many, many other things that I could say about this matter. And if folks have questions or would like me to explore other aspects of this particular topic, please do just provide that feedback and I'd be happy to do so. But in the meantime, I hope you find this interesting and insightful and perhaps inspiring. And until next time, take good care.